Hello, sayinokanow.org listeners. I just wanted to take a quick second to let you know that we have launched a t-shirt campaign. All of our t-shirts are harm reduction inspired and are available on our website, so please go and check that out. Also, please take that thumb of yours right now and hit that subscribe button. It really, really matters as far as getting recognition goes. And if you have even 20 seconds of time, please rate and review this podcast on whichever platform you're listening because that helps as well. A big thanks to CRISM, the Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse, for providing funding for this podcast to take place. And as always, thanks to DJ Charlie Hustle for providing the intro and outro music. As always, the views, ideas, and everything discussed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of CRISM or any of their members. And the same goes for me and all of our guests. So thanks a lot for checking this out. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, I am very excited to have a special guest all the way from the United States of America, our neighbor to the south, Chris Nyrop. Uh, Chris is the Director of Harm Reduction Practices for Public Defender Association. He's been one of the key uh, individuals involved in the LEAD project, um, and he'll give us more details about that. But uh, Chris has also spent a lot of time um, doing research both in Canada and the United States and consulting on a variety of different drug and policy-related issues. So thanks a lot for coming on the show, Chris. My pleasure. Happy to join you. Great. So, Chris, what what is the LEAD program? So, LEAD stands for Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, uh, and it was a response here in Seattle to the issue of open-air drug markets. Uh, And what we found here was that our police were arresting and coming into contact with the same individuals over and over and over again, and they were realizing that a criminal justice only approach to these individuals was not addressing the underlying issues. Uh, and so the police, in collaboration with uh, service providers, prosecutors, business and residence uh, owners, um, decided that what we wanted was a, a, a program where the police, at the point of contact with an individual, to do an immediate diversion into intensive case management. Wow. So, okay. So it, obviously it's, it's a lot of the um, lead community members getting together to, uh, and when I say lead, I mean like the, actually some of the core, um, you know, health regions, police, business, you know, all these core leadership groups of the community coming together to help solve a problem. Is that right? Correct. Absolutely. It's a collaborative, multi-jurisdictional, multidisciplinary approach. And what we've discovered is that when we get everyone on the same page and working together and talking to each other, we get things accomplished that we never got be- done before when we were all operating in our individual silos. Right. And that seems to happen far too often um, in, Correct. in Canada as well. So how did you get into this, Chris? What's, what's your background and, and your experience as far as... Uh as far as drug policy and whatnot goes? So my experience actually was from uh, the public health, direct frontline social service world. Uh, I did a lot of work around HIV prevention with people who were homeless uh, and drug users. Um, And one of the things that that I discovered in the course of my work was that in, in a sort of interesting way, a lot of the frontline police officers and I had shared things in common. And one of that was that we were working with the same individuals uh, and sometimes at cross purposes. Um, 
And so, you know, one of the, the, the great things about LEAD is working with those same officers that sometimes we used to have, you know, sort of arguments or difficulties with, and now we're actually on the same page. We can text each other. We call each other. Um, the police know exactly where to take someone uh, if they encounter them and they, they think to themselves, you know, taking this person to jail is not going to do a darn thing now. Right. Um, they, they have some place where they can actually take them where they know something is going to happen with them. And for the service providers, you know, they know that if, if, they, if they're working with someone, they can reach out to the police and say, hey, I'm looking for so-and-so. You guys seen him recently? And the police will say, oh, yeah, that person's sleeping in the red tent underneath that overpass. <laughs> right. Yep. Right. So, so where did this get starting? Was it, was it in Seattle where this got going then, Chris? Or? It, yep, it was in Seattle, and uh, I don't want to gloss it over. It took us uh, about two years of very prolonged discussion and debate uh, to get to the point where we launched it. But we launched it as a small pilot project uh, in October of 2011, um, and we launched it in one, one specific neighborhood in the city of Seattle. Um, and we're now at the point where we're operational in three of the Seattle Police Department's five precincts. We're moving into the fourth precinct uh, later this year. Uh, and we also have expanded uh, within the United States from you know, the East Coast to the West Coast. Wow. So does that mean it's working? Uh, it is working. Uh, and in fact, interestingly enough, just within the city of Seattle, even before we had any evaluation results at all, um, residents and business owners in neighborhoods that were adjacent to our pilot neighborhood went to the city of Seattle, uh, the mayor and the city council and said, why does Belltown get lead and we don't? Wow. Uh, and so... A year before we had any evaluation results at all, the city council voted to expand it into other neighborhoods because just just anecdotally and qualitatively, the results were so observable on the street wow. um, that the adjoining neighborhoods demanded that their tax dollars get used on this. Um, and it's it's every, every year since then, it has been expanded in the city budget. That's incredible when you see the community actually responding in that yeah. way. So, yeah, because I know typically um, up here in Canada, um, you know, rather, ra I mean, in com direct political comparison to the U.S., we're, we're much more liberal. Even our conservative party, I would say, is probably more liberal exactly. than, than your uh, yep. than your Democrats. Yeah. But yep. and, and yet we still have issues getting, like we, in our community here in Saskatoon, we don't have a safe consumption site, for example. Um, I know there's mm -hmm. some, some community groups, um, us included, that are working towards getting one, and, and it's only a matter of time, really. But uh, I, I think the community has kind of come on board that safe injection sites, for example, uh, consumption sites are important, but it's one of those, I want one in my community, but not in my backyard. Correct. So how did, how did you guys overcome overcome that or is this a complete or does it or does this kind of operate completely different um than a well, safe consumption site would well th yeah this is unfortunately different we also are working on getting the safe consumption sites here in seattle and and uh we believe that in fact um our experience with lead has has made the conversation around that much much more palatable uh, than it would be because you you are correct that that here in the United States folks are 
more conservative. Uh, mm-hmm. Seattle is probably as close to a Canadian type city as you're going to find uh, in the U.S. But what, what I will say is that what made people here um, be willing to do lead was that, again, as I said, it was on a pilot basis. And so we, we said, you know, we're going to try this to see if it works. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something different. Right. But the thing that the thing that we kept, you know, hammering home in conversations with people, because there was some reluctance for sure when we started. But what we we did was we started from the point of getting everyone to acknowledge that the status quo was not working for them. Um, And and once everyone was like, yep, we're all at this table for different reasons, but the one thing we agree on is that what we're doing right now is not working. <laughs> That's awesome. And as long as we agree that what we're doing now is not working, yeah. then why wouldn't we do something different than That's what right. we're doing now? That's and right. that was sort of the breakthrough moment where everyone was like, huh, <laughs> yeah, it's not working for me, and it, I didn't realize it wasn't working for you. That's good to hear. Okay. And so that was what did it. And that's a quick way. That's a quick way to erase the eagles at the table as well. When you say, exactly. Oh, no one at the table yeah. has the right answer here. It's it's coming together it, where where the truth's going to come out. Exactly, and that was that was really it for us. And once once everyone said, "Okay, in good faith, I'm here because I want to see a better outcome," and I don't know what that answer is because what I've been doing so far has not given me the outcome I want, and. Uh, and then, you know, that, you know, as long as you can find some sort of common ground and work in good faith, I think people generally can work things out. Well, that's right. And most of these are, you know, human service fields. So everyone did get into this, these different professions in one shape or form exactly. to, to help to help out the community. And if it's not working, then let's do something different. Exactly. So, and I think that was that was just a, as a quick aside. I think that was when we first started doing this and some of the frontline case managers did ride along with the police officers and there was kind of that breakthrough moment where they looked at each other and was like, you know, we're doing the same thing. Right. Just differently. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or we've got the same goals at least. Yeah. But doing it differently. Exactly. So, yep. okay. We, we talked about a kind of the big picture overview of the lead program, Chris, can you walk me through um, what does it look on that small level? So what does it look like on that individual level? So what, what physically is happening on the street? Sure. So two different things are happening. Uh, and what I'll, I'll walk you through the way we first started. Okay. So when we first started, it was uh, an arrest-based diversion program. So in that, in that scenario, a police officer would absolutely have grounds to make an arrest of an individual for a small, low-level offense that would not result in much jail or prison time. Okay. So possess, possession of drugs for personal consumption um, or prostitution, uh, and we've since, since expanded it to uh, things like shoplifting, um, mail theft, uh, and other offenses like that that people are doing to support a drug habit. Okay. So the police officer has grounds to make an arrest. They run a records check to see if the person has any violent history in their past, and if they don't, um, the, the police officer can say to the person, I've got two doors. Door number one is the King County jail. Door number two is a referral to case management. Um, and you know, if the person says that they want a referral to case management, the police officer calls the case manager, 
case manager shows up on the spot and it's a direct warm handoff. So it's not giving the person a business card and saying, wow. call this number or go to this office. It's, it's an actual, you know, one moment the police officer is standing there talking to them. The next moment a case manager is there and the case manager wow. and the person go off. So you guys actually so, removed that, that barrier of even, of even entering yeah. the system. Exactly. So that, is that that's way 20... we don't lose anybody. We so get that... them right there. So is that 24 hours a day then? The case manager yeah. will show up? So now it is. Uh, oh. Now we are at 24-7. It took us, uh, took us about five and a half, six years to get there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when we, when we first started, again, it was on a pilot basis. The police and the case managers worked together to set up an agreed upon schedule of, of when the case managers would be available. So we never left the police like holding the bag. Right. Um, but now, now it is 24 seven. Wow. And then, and then the, the sort of alteration that came into this came from the request of our police officers, which is um, not long after we started, some of the frontline officers came back and said, you know, we're out here every day of the week. We know these folks. In some cases, we know what high school they went to. We know their family members. Right. Why in the world do we need to wait until we have grounds for an arrest to make a referral into this program? And so we instituted uh, what we call a social contact route of referral, which allows police officers in the course of their routine work, if they're encountering individuals who, you know, in their estimation, that person is engaging in problematic behavior due to, you know, a behavioral health condition such as drug use or even mental illness. Yep. Um, they can then make a referral to a case manager without having to wait until the point where they would actually arrest the person. Wow. Wow, that's very cutting edge. Yes. And, and, and so... And, and, uh, and so, sorry, would they just would they just approach this person in the community then and say, like, I mean, I have, as a, as a cop in, in my city, I mean, there's a hundred people that I could just approach with because I have a good working relationship with. And is it just somebody that I could just approach and just say, hey, look, we've got this program. Are you interested in partaking in it? Is it that simple? Or? Yeah, it's pretty much. And you and you just you just you just illustrated something that I've encountered with virtually every police officer in every city that I've ever talked to, which is. They all know a group of people that they encounter, you know, if not day in or day out, week in or week out, that they totally. encounter on a routine basis. They know these people and they really have nothing they can do for them except to say, move along right. or arrest them. Right. Uh, and yes, exactly. So now what happens is um, we actually have a twice monthly uh, meeting where the police officers and the case managers and the prosecutors all come together, sit down at the same table, and they do case staffing of people that are already in the program. And that's where officers can also bring up, hey, you know, I got three people out in this area that I think would be a really good fit for this program. And we talk about it. And if everyone says, yep, that sounds great. Then, then exactly. The police can go right up to the person and say, hey, I got this program. Would you be interested in it? And if the person says yes, then they, again, they call a case manager and case manager shows up. Wow. And so then what happens once that case manager takes over? So when the case manager first meets with the person, what they're doing at, at the very first meeting is sort of a triage. They're, you know, they're doing, um, uh, you know, who are you and where can I find you again? 
because a lot of our folks are homeless, so they don't have a fixed address. Right. Uh, sometimes they don't, they don't even have a phone number. So what the case manager is really trying to do is find out, you know, who this person is and where they are. Like, do they access social services anywhere else? Do they go to a food bank? Uh, do they sleep in a shelter? Um, if, they're, if they're outside, where is it that they sleep? You know, where do they go? It's follow-up information. It's, it's so the case manager can actually find this person. Right. And, then, and then the next thing is, you know, what is it that you need right at this very moment? Uh, you know, do you need shelter? Do you need clothing? Do you need food? And so once those, those basics are out of the way, um, then the case manager does uh, an intensive psychosocial intake with the individual, really trying to get an assessment of, of where this person is at in terms of their substance use, uh, any behavioral health conditions. And a lot of times in that first meeting, you know, not surprisingly, people are somewhat reluctant to be fully honest and fully disclosed. But right. the case managers are really what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a trusting relationship with that person so that that person can actually disclose. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I've found from talking to the case managers is, you know, sometimes they'll, they, they will have been working with a person for a, a few months before some of the underlying trauma issues start to come out. Uh, you know, and I just, just one quick example. I mean, we had this one individual who was homeless at the time of his referral and was just the one thing he did not want to accept was housing. Uh, and wow. the case manager could not figure this out. And it was only after about five or six months that it started com coming out that this individual had been severely abused uh, as a child um, and then had been involved in some relationships as a teenager and adult that also involved a lot of sort of verbal and physical abuse. And this person, like in their own head, associated being indoors right. with being traumatized. Well, and being trapped, uh, right? Being trapped. Exactly. Being yeah. trapped. Yeah. Exactly. And so they preferred to be outside because they weren't with enclosed in a space. There was right. always an escape route. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, I, you know, I, I'm sure you probably haven't listened to uh, our podcast before, but if you end up listening, there's a common thread, especially when I start talking, there's, we have a lot of guests that have lived experience. And I think so far I've had three um, individuals on our podcast who disclosed sexual abuse for the first time, and they all have lived experience. And so we're, uh. we're, we're helping get this narrative out there that these people, nobody chooses to be addicted to a substance it's <laughs> exactly right like nobody does and yep. got like and you know we need to get it out of our minds that most of these people are just out there trying to party and have a great a great time and just decide to say f you to society i'm gonna i'm gonna do it my way it's it's yeah it's the complete opposite of that so um yeah it's it's interesting that even in you know even in the u.s you guys are finding those same common common stories coming out Absolutely. So once that person, um, once that person has a case manager, so then it is, does the case manager then form the relationship and then help that individual get housing and and 
enter exactly and okay. basically one of the things one of the things that we we you know we said when we started is we don't know what the answer is here so we are going to try anything and everything uh, nothing is off the table in terms of what the case managers do so so our idea really is that the case manager is that person's personal advocate so Anything that that individual needs, the case manager, either he or she can help with or will find someone who can help with that issue. Right. Um, and, you know, again, a lot of what we're discovering is it's really small steps. So just here in Seattle, as a quick example, um, you know, 56 percent of our folks in our original pilot had no legal identification at the time of their diversion. Oh, wow. uh, and so just getting them legal ID was an, a, a one concrete thing that a case manager could do to help them. And having legal identification made all sorts of difference. Totally. The other thing we discovered is that even though many of these individuals were eligible for various social benefits, you know, we had a, a group of veterans who were eligible for veterans benefits. Right. They'd never been to a veterans hospital. Oh, wow. uh, they were eligible for, uh, you know, state subsidized health and dental care. They'd never accessed it. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, in the United States, unlike Canada, accessing our health care system is a, a total nightmare down here, even after passage of some health care reform. So that's that's a big issue for us that it might not be similar in Canada. But I would suspect that there are going to be folks in Canada who might not be accessing health care even though they have it. Well, uh, there's no doubt. And there's, well, often what happens is, that, is they access health care, but they access it in a means that is extremely expensive. So if oh, of course. Right? right. They'll, they'll use ambulances as, as you know, a yeah. taxi sometimes or, you know, yeah. to get to the other side of the city. Um, so it's not being used, it's not being used appropriately. And that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I'm interested in, in something like the lead and seeing if there's a Canadian adaptation of it, because, um, we need to reduce some of those, uh, healthcare costs. And we, you know, we've, seen, we, we've got a alcohol, a managed alcohol program that's brand new in, uh, in our community here. And there's only two people on it right now. We've just got funding to extend it to nine beds, but the results are astronomical these people were, were were creating a minimum of three calls per service every single day from either yep. police ambulance um or health care and now in for the two that have been on it for almost a year they've created zero that was i mean the cost yeah. saving is is insane right we actually had a building like that we we opened a building here uh actually before we did lead of permanent supportive housing for chronic alcoholics. Uh, and the building ended up paying for itself in reduced calls to the emergency room. Uh, oh, yeah, you're right. These people can just, you know, uh, can, can, can be going in and out of the emergency room two to three times a day uh, if they're really, really severe into alcoholism. Right. So one one of the things I noticed when I was uh, when I was researching the lead program and before I reached out with you that I I thought was uh, very um, interesting and progressive was that in order to be a part of the program you don't have to uh, abstain from using. Correct. Can that was that that was exactly one of the things that again when we got together and said what we're doing now is not working was 
We had a drug court program here in Seattle that had been operational for well over a decade before we started. Uh, and what we saw was that while drug court was quite successful with, uh, with one group of folks, it was not successful with another. Uh, and there were folks who would, would rather take jail time than do drug court. They'd say, go ahead and give me the six months. Forget it. Oh, wow. Uh, and so what we were, were thinking of, what is it we can do for those folks for whom our normal tools are not working? Uh, and, and, and so one of the things that, that came out of that discussion was that drug court and other programs like that required abstinence. And in some cases, uh, they enforced that through doing uh, urine testing and other forms of drug testing. And that if people, you know, turned up testing positive, they would then go to jail. Uh, and so we, we really rooted this in a harm reduction uh, stages of change philosophy, which is that we're going to work with individuals on a long-term basis um, and try and get them to change behavior in small incremental steps wow. uh, rather than to do it, you know, all in one fell swoop. Wow, good for you. Have have you guys seen um by using that that mythology, have you guys seen any reduction? Have you actually seen anybody that's, you know, chosen treatment and stopped using? Oh, absolutely. Uh in you know, in fact, it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable uh what we've seen. And again, I don't want to sugarcoat it or gloss it over. It takes time. For sure. Um but, you know, something like 60% of the folks that have been diverted here have actually gone through substance use treatment. Um, and then we've had any number of others who have stopped using or shifted their use from an illegal substance to a legal substance in a non-problematic way. Um, we have, you know, we have obviously alcohol, but we also have legal cannabis here in Washington state. Um, and getting someone, you know, to shift from illegal use of opioids or stimulants and going to cannabis is actually, believe it or not, a form of harm reduction. Well, they are course. now yeah. engaged in a legal activity that is, you know, safer and much less costly. Oh, yeah. Um, but we've also seen, you know, any number of individuals. In fact, I'll just, you know, just one example, one of our very early referrals into the lead program here in Seattle now sits on the board of directors of the organization that I work for. Uh, and, you know, we have any number of individuals who anytime this program comes up for refunding at the city or county level, they come in and they testify before the city and county council um, about, you know, being in the program and the changes they've made. And I think that's, that's certainly one of the reasons why we've been successful at getting uh, continued funding is there's nothing like a city or county council person, you know, seeing someone who was homeless for 20 years and, you know, severely abused and substance using and is now, you know, standing in front of them um, and talking about the changes they've made in their life. Yeah, no doubt. That, I think that's the biggest. We're we're big proponents of um, nothing about us without us. Um, exactly. And so that's yep. that's the big thing. I mean, so so many times um, we've all, you know, I think I think most of us um, in our communities are are good natured and good hearted, and we want to help those around us. 
but instead of it seems like a lot of times you know you'll see a new nonprofit forum or even a religious based organization forum and they get out there and they're doing something um, and mm-hmm. then they're not, and then they're not seeing the results and then they're asking for more funding and no one wants to give it cause there's no results. And it's like, well, you didn't, you didn't go to the community and ask what it is they needed. You just provide, you just decided to provide something <laughs> without ever, exactly. without ever checking. Yeah. So yeah, yep. I, I like that, that you guys actually have, um, basically board members that, that went through the program. That's how it should be. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. So what are, so I guess how big of a cost, do, or do you know the numbers for the cost? Um, well, so here's where I would get cautious because it, it, it's hard to translate a U.S. system into a system where healthcare is already funded. Right. Um, right. So, but but what we did do was we looked at. Um, we looked at criminal justice system utilization and the savings that occurred there. So when we, when we first started, because we, we were a pilot project and it was, you know, sort of a radical new program, um, we, you know, we, uh, we compared people who were diverted into lead uh, into a group of folks who were routed through the criminal justice system as normal. Right. And, what we were able to demonstrate there is that diverting to lead is actually significantly cheaper than using the criminal justice system as normal. Right. Um, and <clears throat> what we discovered was that, and this is the part where I, I hesitate to go down this path, is that, that here in Seattle, um, we spent about, I think it was about $2,700 U.S., per participant per year um, over the long run. But again, that includes expenses that um, you probably would not encounter in Canada. So, right. so for example, um, we started LEAD prior to any healthcare reform here in the United States. So if someone came into the program and they wanted drug treatment, we were actually paying a treatment provider for that. Like a private, um, a private exactly. uh, provider. Oh, I see. Yep. And if, and if they came in and they needed a dental extraction, we were actually paying a dentist to do that procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're trying to do now is we actually are going back right at this moment um, to relook at some of that in the light of the healthcare reform that has gone on because, you know, we are confident that the cost now is going to be cheaper than it was when we first started. Well, $2,700 a person seems minuscule. Yeah, like it exactly. Really, it really does. So how many caseworkers do you have in the city of Seattle? Oh, that, that I will say is one of those things where um, y- you have to be prepared to, to sort of invest in it. Right. We, we, we try and keep our caseloads to about 25 participants per case manager. Okay. Um, and so what we've discovered is that you, you, you end up hiring more and more case managers. We started right. with four, which honestly was, was overkill on our part. We could have started with just a couple, um, you know, but we did start with four. Um, 
And they were maxed out after a little over a year. So again, as I say, we could have started smaller and then added. Right. But uh, we're now up to, I want to say about 22 or 23 case managers. But that has, again, that's because we have expanded to cover uh, three-fifths of the, the police department's precincts uh, and about 75 or 80% of the actual population of the city. And just for reference, you know, the city of Seattle is about 750,000 people now. Okay. Uh, so it, it really depends on the size of your area. We're working with jurisdictions that are much, much smaller than Seattle that have less case managers. Uh, and we're working with some jurisdictions that are larger that are, you know, really rapidly hiring case managers. Right. So is there a representative then in each uh, police precinct that is kind of like the lead cop who then kind of trains all the other officers and then um, kind of explains how the program works and helps transition the individual to the case manager? Or how does that? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so so once we once we got up and going here in Seattle, we had um, a couple of sergeants. We started in, in what's known as the West Precinct of the Seattle Police Department. And once we got up and going, we had a sergeant or two in the West Precinct who sort of became, you know, it, it sort of the lead was really a big part of their portfolio. And so since once we started expanding it um, to other shifts or to other precincts, um, th- those officers would go in and would explain it uh, and, you know, would tell them how to go about doing it. Um, we also have police officers that um, now, so for example, the retired chief of the Albany, New York Police Department um, actually works you know, full time now on providing technical support to other police departments, uh, goes out and does training with uh, officers, both you know, line officers and command staff, um, and you know, provides ongoing support to them. Oh, wow. So, so the cost of these case managers that the that Seattle's paying for, um, it, does that come? Is that did you guys get like state funding, or did you get like national funding, or is it just straight from the municipality? So here in Seattle, it the funding for the case managers comes from the municipality. Okay. Uh, in a couple of areas in the U.S., funding is happening at the state level. So in California, Colorado, and Hawaii, um, the state legislature actually approved the funding and then uh, has doled it out to municipalities. Uh, so either model works. Oh, I see. And so these case, so then the the case matters. They are like you said, just advocates for these individuals. So if they need, if this individual is like um, currently living on the street and I need housing and I haven't accessed social services, all that case manager is basically doing is being a spokesperson to the services that already exist. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay. So there, so like that's why there's no you know huge massive cost to a program like this because these um, these kind of assisted services are already staples within our communities, most of them. Exactly. And the, the issue is hooking these individuals in lead up with the existing services. Now, 
In, in some cases in, in where we've worked, there haven't been services, so there's needed to be a service infrastructure of some sort. Right. Um, but sometimes that's not too complicated. So, for example, we've worked with a couple of jurisdictions in the U.S. where there really was no community-based substance use uh, treatment available. Uh, and so prior to doing LEAD, what they did was they worked with some doctors in the community to get those doctors to be willing to provide substance use treatment services, right. uh, you know, rather than trying to create some whole new infrastructure. So having them, you know, be willing to prescribe things like Suboxone or, or exactly. Uh, methadone. That's exactly right. That's right. exactly what I was thinking of is, is, is getting doctors who were willing to do uh, prescription uh, out of their practice that they might not have done before. Okay. And so the case manager is that becomes that advocate. So that's the most important part of this process, really, besides the referral sure. from the police. And then, and then, you know, and part of that is let's so let's say let's say you do get a person uh, who's been referred in, and you find them a doctor who's willing to prescribe suboxone for that person. You know, the case manager is then at least in you know the initial phases is going to accompany that person to the doctor's appointment. Right. Uh, both to make sure that they actually go, but to make sure they understand what's being told to them. That's uh, Exactly. And then, you know, I mean, sometimes we've discovered that, you know, we've got people in the program who are in their mid-40s, and suddenly, it, you know, the case manager discovers this person really does not know how to read and write. Uh, and so, um, you know, they need to have someone there on their behalf who can interpret all of the information that's being given, and then make sure that the person understands exactly what it is they've been told or what's on that piece of paper that they've just been handed. Wow. Well, Chris, you, you sold me on this model. There's no doubt um, that this is a need here in Canada as well. We do have, um, right in my community and, and in several other ones, we have adopted like a hub model. I think it started yeah. in uh, in Scotland. So, so we do yep. that for individuals who are in frequent contact with the police. And it's kind of the same, it's a similar idea, but, but I don't think you see, you wouldn't see the crime reduction results as I think you would with a program like LEAD. Because these individuals, if they're being monitored by a case manager, chances are they're probably committing less crimes. Oh, absolutely. Yep. If yeah. You... I mean, in fact, our evaluation results were, were very clear on that. We were actually flabbergasted by it. individuals diverted into lead here in Seattle were 58% less likely to be arrested on a new offense than individuals who were routed to the criminal justice system. That doesn't mean they don't get rearrested, but they are far less likely to. Wow, and that's a huge cost savings, 58% to the criminal justice yeah. system. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, Chris, where can people go to find more information about this program? So our main website at the moment is is Lead Bureau, L-E-A-D-B-U-R-E-A-U dot org. Lead Bureau dot org. Uh, and we have an email address there um, that people can uh, send an email to to request any further information. But at the website, we have a description of the program. We have links to all the evaluations that have been done. Uh, and we have uh, a variety of other resources and tools there as well. Brilliant. And I'll make sure that I, uh, that I have a link to that as well in the show notes so people can go and take a look at the research oh, that's been done. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for coming on, Chris. Um, Absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks for the work you're doing. And I, I learned a ton.
Great. Well, it was really wonderful to talk to you, and I look forward to uh, learning more about the podcast and further communication with you uh, and anyone from Canada that's interested. Sounds great. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the Say No podcast. I have to say that when I first started doing this podcast, I never thought that I'd get to talk to the caliber of experts that I have. I hope you've learned as much as I have along the way. Uh, Please head over to our Facebook page. Let us know what you think of this episode. Also, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. It really, really matters. Please take the time to do that. And also, if you have an extra 25 bucks and you want to show your community that you are harm reduction minded and look good while doing it, check out the t-shirts we have for sale at sayno.org. Take care. Catch you next time.